Rogue Castaways Hostile Takeover, episode number two. just wanted to take a minute and thank everyone for the overwhelming support we received after episode number one of Hostile Takeover. We thought there could be a large turnout for the first episode, but even we were surprised how many people listened. We've had enough traffic that you can now find this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to visit our website, roadcastaways.com, and subscribe to our updates. We'll continue posting documents that are relevant to each episode, along with the transcript and eventually video. There's a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get on with episode number two. A felon, an insurance salesman, and a priest walk into a bar. As we've stated before, the group of people that are involved with the Mason Classical Academy scandals are as interesting a group of people as could be found in any school anywhere in the United States. I'm using the word interesting very judiciously as I believe that it takes all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds to make something like a school work. It takes a village, right? But some of the people that were involved with the founding and running of the school may be a little more than what the village bargained for. Today, we're going to talk about three of those villagers specifically. First, we're going to talk about Nick Lichter, the husband of MCA chairperson Kelly Mason Lichter, and someone that probably should have been vetted even just a little bit before he was allowed to have such a hands-on role at the school. Trusting someone you may not know all that well with the safety and health of a large group of children isn't a responsible way to approach running a school. But that's what happened here. We're going to talk about Joe Whitehead, the current assistant principal at MCA, and one of the employees that has been accused of being involved in the Golden Parachute contract scandal. And finally, we're going to talk about David Bolduch. Mr. Bolduch, who is an insurance salesman in Naples, Florida, is also a board member of Mason Classical Academy. Mr. Bolduch has regularly participated in violating state sunshine and open government laws as a member of the MCA board, recently stepped up his game when he attempted to sneak through a change to the school's health insurance provider that would have illegally netted him a large financial gain. The first time I ever heard the name Nick Lichter, was when another parent at MCA forwarded me a screenshot of a Facebook post by Nick from one of the parents' groups. The post by Nick was in reference to a complaint with the state filed by former treasurer of the MCA board, Joseph Baird, and was directed at Baird and a few other founding members of Mason Classical Academy. The posting basically read as follows. Byron Donalds, Erica B. Donalds, and Joe Baird just fucked with the wrong school. Bring it on, you lying bitches. I hadn't been fully exposed to how the MCA board and leadership acted at this point, but I found it very odd that the husband of the board chair of the school was posting this kind of inflammatory rhetoric. I was not offended by the language, and it was not something that I was unaccustomed to hearing, but I would expect more professionalism from a family member of a school board's chairperson. At that point, I thought that maybe they were divorced and he was doing his own thing and acting the fool without running it past her first. This was the summer of 2018, 
and I didn't have an actual interaction with Mr. Lichter until almost a year later in the spring of 2019. It was shortly after the Collier County Public School District had released an investigative report about the many transgressions that had taken place at MCA that parents began speaking openly on Facebook Messenger and MCA-specific Facebook pages about the lack of competent leadership at the school and the hopes that the school district would step in and force a leadership change. I still thought it was most likely that public opinion and pressure from parents would lead to the resignation of these people that had, at this point, made the story of this school more about them as individuals than about the kids. At one point, I had posted an MCA page that I had confidence that Kelly Mason Lichter and the other board members would resign rather than allow the school's reputation to suffer further damage. Nick Lichter jumped into the conversation and stated that his wife would not resign. I asked him, if it came down to her resigning or the school being closed, what would she do? His response, can you call me? Nick sent me his number, so I picked up the phone and called him and had a cordial and not unfriendly 30-minute call where he went on to tell me that I didn't know anything about the situation and that the truth would come out eventually. He stated that there was a huge conspiracy being perpetrated by the school district and a group of disgruntled parents that wanted nothing more than to close the school and embarrass him and his wife. Nick also made it clear that he and his wife would bring the school down before allowing anyone else but her to run it. Even though she was one member of a board of three, he made it clear that all the votes of the board were controlled by Kelly and they would allow no one else to infiltrate or interfere with the leadership of their school. Now, I'm not a person that is easily talked into believing in massive, far-reaching conspiracy theories, and Nick's assurances that he wasn't making up this conspiracy was doing nothing to convince me that one existed in this case either. However, once the call with Nick was completed, I decided that more research into these people was needed before I could decide who I could and could not trust. It didn't take much looking to determine that Nick Lichter was someone not to be trusted. A very basic search of Nick Lichter in Naples, Florida, turned up some pretty disturbing initial information. First, I found a Nicholas Lichter from Naples, Florida, that had been arrested for domestic abuse on May 23, 2010. The booking sheet from the arrest showed that the Collier County Sheriff's Department had responded to a 911 call from a female advising that she had been involved in a physical confrontation with her husband, Nick Lichter. The caller, who I came to find out was Kelly Mason Lichter, advised the 911 operator that Nick was intoxicated and had trashed the house and threw her against the wall and that there was a history of abuse. She told the operator that Nick had run off somewhere on foot. When the officers arrived, Kelly told them that Nick had come home late and was drunk. An argument ensued, and Kelly told Nick that she wanted a divorce. This enraged Nick, who threw a beer bottle at her that missed and shattered against the front door. He then grabbed her by the shoulders and threw her against the wall, and the officer noted that he did observe a small injury on her right shoulder. Nick also threw a chair and broke a lamp as he left the residence. Kelly advised the officer that there was a history of unreported physical abuse. Nick was found nearby and arrested for domestic battery. However, it appears that Mrs. Lichter refused to testify against him in court and that the case was dismissed due to insufficient evidence. In conducting my research, 
There also appeared to be three or four different warrants for Nick's arrest in the late 80s and early 90s for a variety of issues in which he failed to appear in court. Another disturbing item that came up on a search of Nick Delictor was an arrest on September 2, 2013 in nearby Fort Myers, Florida. Nick was spotted late at night by a patrol car, driving down a street with no headlights and using only the fog lights for illumination. When he was pulled over, Mr. Lichter told the arresting officer that the switch says it's on, referring to the headlights in the car. Mr. Lichter produced registration and insurance for the car, which were both expired. The officer shined his flashlight on the floor of the car and observed various drug paraphernalia in plain view. A canine officer was dispatched to the scene and confirmed that the scent of illegal drugs was present. A search of the car found a white, chalky substance on the driver's door, and a crack pipe was discovered between the seat and the center console. The residue was tested using the officer's drug test kit and tested positive for the presence of cocaine. Lichter was arrested and charged with a third-degree felony of possession of crack cocaine and a first-degree misdemeanor for possession of drug paraphernalia. Lichter claimed that the crack pipe was not his and that he had stayed at the Red Roof Inn the previous night with a woman that he had picked up, and she was fond of smoking crack cocaine and must have left her pipe in the car. Unfortunately, the state's attorney declined to prosecute the case, and it may have had something to do with the fact that prior to the arrest, Nick had led people to believe that he may hurt himself and was reported missing over that same time period by family members. Luckily, he was found in the Lee County Jail. Okay, so let's break this down. You might argue this guy was never convicted of committing a crime. He was only ever charged. So it's not fair to say that he shouldn't be involved with the school. And you'd be right, to a degree. This guy wasn't convicted of domestic battery or felony possession of crack cocaine. But he was arrested for battering his wife, who claimed that there was a history of abuse. And Nick admitted to staying in the Red Roof Inn with a woman that liked to smoke crack cocaine regularly. This still displays pretty bad judgment and questionable moral character on his part. But since he was never convicted of any major crimes, why shouldn't he be given a second chance and allowed to participate in helping create the school, right? Well, I didn't say he was never convicted of a major crime. I just said he wasn't convicted in these two cases. After the break, we'll talk a little bit about Nick Lichter's felony conviction and time in prison. I just wanted to take a minute and thank you for listening to Rogue Castaway's Hostile Takeover. If you want to receive notifications each time we upload a new episode or post new documents, be sure to visit our webpage at roguecastaways.com and hit the subscribe button. You won't want to miss next week's episode. We'll be sharing the story about the secret company members of this leadership group started and concealed from parents. And the other school they pulled a number on here in Florida. Now... Back to the story. We were talking about Nick Lichter and his criminal record. What we didn't yet discuss was Mr. Lichter's felony conviction for unarmed robbery and the year he spent in federal prison. While conducting research on some of the individuals related to MCA, I came across some information about a Nicholas W. Lichter that was convicted of felony unarmed robbery in the state of Massachusetts. 
There were enough Nicholas Lichters found in conducting searches that I wasn't certain that I had the right one and wanted to be sure before I ever said anything about this in public. I wasn't able to find court records pertaining to the conviction, and the corrections department had long ago purged the files related to the conviction. But they were able to confirm that the Nicholas Lichter related to MCA was the same Nicholas Lichter that served time in prison for felony unarmed robbery. Additionally, through a public records request, I was able to obtain an employment application Nick filled out with Collier County Public Schools in 2008, in which he admits being convicted for unarmed robbery and spending 11 months in prison. Unfortunately, we don't have many more details than that. I've contacted Nick multiple times for a comment about his conviction, and all I've ever received were threats and offers to meet him at the end of his street for a fight. The law in the state of Florida prohibits any volunteers, employees, or contractors from being in the school and around children unsupervised if they have not undergone a Level 2 background check. MCA's own policies are the same. So how is it possible that Nick Glickter, a convicted felon with a domestic battery arrest, is allowed in the school during school hours unsupervised? Kelly Lichter has denied that Nick was ever in the school unsupervised, but we've heard from multiple people that this is not the case. In speaking with current and former employees of MCA, I've been told that Nick Lichter has or had keys to the school and he would come and go as he pleases, even when the children were present in the school. Teachers would often see him come in the back door of the school during school hours. Additionally, there are screenshots of the MCA electronic file system showing that Nick has access to school records. How is that possible? I completed a public records request for Nick's Level 2 background screening at MCA and at the school district as the district completes the screening process for all the public schools in the area. Neither had any records about Nick having completed a background check. The school could have non-Level 2 volunteers at the school, but they wouldn't have keys to the school and be able to come and go as they please during the school day. Additionally, with MCA's volunteer program, no volunteer was ever given an option to be a non-Level 2 volunteer. Every volunteer was required to complete the background check regardless of what they were going to be doing at the school. Nick was the only volunteer that we are currently aware of that was not required to complete a background check. I submitted a written complaint to the MCA board against Kelly Lichter regarding Nick's access to the school and the lack of background screening, and I received no response. I reminded them after a month and received an email from, of all people, Kelly Lichter. The email instructed the other board members not to respond and stated that there was no violation and accused me of making defamatory statements. I responded, stating that it was inappropriate for Kelly to even be involved in this discussion, as she was the board member accused of violating MCA policy. Once again, she responded. This time she said, if it was not clear the first time, there has not been any policy violation. Your accusation never included any evidence that there was a policy violation. I ask that this stop immediately. I will ask our attorneys to weigh in next time. Thank you. I don't know about you, but this sounds like a veiled threat that she's going to have the school attorneys come after me if I don't leave her alone. I responded, and I asked her to get her attorney involved. The MCA attorney at the time, Sean Arnold, responded that there was no violation of law and also asked that I leave the board alone.
However, I persisted, and eventually Mr. Arnold referred to my multiple phone calls with Joe Whitehead and asked Joe to contact me and discuss this information with me. I had never spoken to Joe Whitehead over the phone, and the one time I did speak with Joe Whitehead, he claimed he would look into whether Nick was at the school during school hours. He eventually copied me on an email from Sean Arnold, stating that there was no evidence of Nick being at the school unsupervised. However, he did tell Mr. Whitehead that he should follow district policy and have Mr. Lichter complete the criminal history paperwork. Mr. Whitehead has refused to complete public records requests regarding that paperwork, and he has refused to answer my emails as to whether Nick Lichter has ever completed the questionnaire. Mr. Whitehead did answer one of my emails. I had asked him if in the course of his investigation, if he had ever reviewed the visitor's logs at the school to determine if Mr. Lichter had ever signed in at the front desk to enter the school. He stated that he had not reviewed those documents. Sounds like this whole thing was swept under the rug, doesn't it? Well, it was. I found that this is typical of the MCA board. They employ a strategy of deflect and attack. If anyone questions the integrity of the board, deflect them towards another issue with someone else and attack that person in an attempt to avoid answering the tough questions. Kelly deflected the question of whether she had violated policy and pointed her attack at me. She made a veiled threat to attack me with the school attorneys if I persisted on an issue that she didn't want to address. Their attorney employed the same tactic by not answering the question of whether it was against MCA policy for Kelly to respond to a complaint about her. And then he used a prior email from me to say that I had acted inappropriately in the past. I can't get over how inappropriate it is for a chairperson in a taxpayer-funded organization to derail a formal complaint made about them and prevent the other members from even considering the violation. The MCA policy is clear. The accused member may not participate in the adjudication of complaints. But here was Kelly shutting it down before it ever began. Inappropriate is definitely a pattern that persists with this group. Joe Whitehead, the retired police officer, apparently conducted some sort of half-baked investigation regarding Nick Lichter's visits to the school without ever having checked the visitor's logs. Maybe he had his professional wrestler hat on at the time and wasn't thinking like a police officer. Or maybe it was his priest's collar. It's difficult to even comprehend. In a minute, we'll look closer at Joe Whitehead's actions during his time at MCA and how the board has used him to push their agenda. This is Rogue Castaway's Hostile Takeover. If you have any stories or information you want to share about Mason Classical Academy, go to our website at www.roguecastaways.com and send us an email. We'll keep your identity completely confidential. Thanks for listening. It's no surprise that Joe Whitehead has been involved with all the shenanigans at MCA. He definitely has most favored status with Kelly Lichter, as he was one of the employees accused of participating in the Golden Parachute scandal, and he actually requested he be paid out for the remainder of his contract just before the scandal really blew up. Mr. Whitehead was also the employee that decided he was going to check certain students 
to see if they were wearing underwear without parental permission when a young boy had an accident and flushed his soiled underwear down a toilet at MCA. In this day and age, what would make you think it was okay to conduct an underwear check without permission? And how humiliating was that for all the boys that were checked, not just the boy that had the issue? He was also the person that said he had no problem ending a parent's lease on life when they went to the media after the school would not respond to her request for help. Mr. Whitehead has also used his position to conduct several investigations and police actions as it relates to personal issues of employees or board members. In 2018, Principal David Hull was unhappy with his son's relationship with another student at the school and notified the parents of that student that he would take legal action if their daughter had any additional contact with his son. Coincidentally, the daughter's parents had filed a grievance with the MCA board over an incident where Mr. Hall was accused of bullying her and some of her other classmates. The board brushed away the complaint without any action, but that complaint only made David Hall more upset. Hall notified Joe Whitehead that there had been contact between Hall's son and the other parent's daughter after he demanded that she stop speaking with his son, and he asked Mr. Whitehead's assistance in the matter. Joe advised him to contact the state's attorney and the sheriff's office, and Hall followed up with an email that he would keep Mr. Whitehead posted on the interactions with relevant entities as we move forward. Joe later emailed Hall to let him know that he had spoken to the state's attorney and that Joe would be the collection point for all documents related to this moving forward. At the same time, Hall continued to threaten the parents and the student directly through personal emails. Why was Joe Whitehead involved with this? Hull was acting as a parent, not as a principal. Yet he was using Joe Whitehead as his own personal representative with law enforcement. Joe should have never been involved with this situation, especially when the parents of the girl had filed complaints with the school against Hull. In 2019, while all these scandals were coming to a head against MCA, Kelly Lichtner partnered with another parent, Janet Greer, to hold a parents' meeting online. Only the people that were invited were notified about the meeting with Kelly Lichter, but some of the invitees notified other parents about the meeting. During this meeting, Kelly Lichter talked about a variety of subjects, including that they did not want a parent-teacher organization that she did not have control of. So was this a private or a public meeting? Is it appropriate for the board chair to discuss what the board wants in a private meeting with only the parents she invites? Shouldn't this have been a publicly advertised meeting? This became a specific issue when a listener recorded the entire meeting and the statements made by Kelly eventually went public. When Kelly discovered that someone had recorded the meeting, she made an issue of it and said that it was illegal recording of a private meeting by a parent. She stated that it was against the law to record calls of this type, and she asked Joe Whitehead to investigate. Why would Joe Whitehead investigate a private meeting as a representative of MCA? If it's a private meeting, why is Joe involved at all? If it's MCA business, then it should not have been a private meeting. Yet, Joe Whitehead conducted another of his investigations and presented his limited findings at a board meeting about his contact with authorities and went on to give his expert legal opinion on how the law was broken. Currently, 
The police department has not filed any charges, and any active investigation has ceased. More recently, Joe was used to help provide a smokescreen for David Balducci and the MCA board during the current health insurance scandal that rocked the school in early 2020. More on that in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Rogue Castaway's Hostile Takeover. There are multiple ways to listen to the Rogue Castaway's podcast. Our show is hosted by Transistor at Transistor.fm, but you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're also posting our episodes as a video on YouTube. Just search Rogue Castaway's Hostile Takeover on your favorite podcasting platform to find us. And thanks for listening. On Tuesday, March 28, 2020, Mason Classical Academy had an emergency board meeting. The agenda for the meeting only included two items, an item titled Investigation and another called Closed Attorney-Client Session. Just prior to the meeting, though, on the school website, there was a document posted in an area that is typically used to post the agenda and other documents discussed during the board meeting. The document posted on that day was only up on the website for a few minutes before it was deleted altogether. Luckily, a savvy parent had downloaded the document and circulated it to other parents before it was deleted. This document was a letter from the current principal of MCA, Pamela Vicarious, to the board chair, Kelly Mason Lichter. In the letter, she accused the board members of committing a multitude of Sunshine Law violations and goes on to detail their actions. Mrs. Vicarious also states that she will no longer stay silent about the crimes, and she notifies Mrs. Lichter that she has already reported these activities to the Florida Office of the Inspector General, the Florida Department of Education, and the Florida Commission on Ethics. Along with the letter, Mrs. Vicarious included two emails, one from a teacher detailing what she called offensive and demeaning behavior directed at her by current executive director and former principal David Hall. The second was the email from the Director of Maintenance at MCA, Stanley Walkowitz. His email, which we discussed at length in Episode 1 of this podcast, detailed many concerns about the deteriorating conditions of the school building and his belief that the building would not currently pass a health or fire marshal inspection. One paragraph from Mrs. Vicarious's letter is particularly shocking. It read, Since the beginning of my employment with MCA as principal less than seven months ago, I have been a witness to you and other board members committing and conspiring to commit a multitude of Sunshine Law violations. This ranges from you ordering the delay on responding to and fulfilling valid public records requests to conducting MCA business outside of a properly noticed board meeting to deciding matters not on any agenda at board meetings in a choreographed fashion with other board members to even secretly removing staff's access to the email server so those completing public records requests would not find responsive documents. Pamela Vicarious continues, 
I have also been a first-hand witness to David Bolduch's misuse of his position as MCA's treasurer to further his own personal financial interests, not the least of which was his acting in dual roles as an MCA board member and as a director of Captivated Health when he took me to Boston and Orlando. On those trips, he acted as an agent of Captivated Health in procuring deals, including one with MCA, all without ever making any public disclosure of his vested interest during MCA's meetings. What's more, you have directed me to assist in the thwarting of the very job Mr. Moore was tasked to do to keep MCA in compliance. And when I would have none of it, you set your focus on me. I have delayed implementing Captivated Health because of the illegality of the deal you and the other board members struck behind closed doors. Wow. The fact that the letter to Mrs. Lichter and emails from staff members was posted to the website and almost immediately taken down leads us to believe that Mrs. Vicarious posted the documents with the intention of sharing them with the public and that a board member or the executive director, Mr. Hull, subsequently removed them from the page to prevent the details of the contents from going public. Once the meeting was underway, Kelly Lichter did some quick housekeeping and then stated that there had been an accusation by the principal, Pam Vicarious, and that she believes that the board should engage their regular attorney to investigate the accusations. Board member Conrad Wilkham asked what specifically would the attorney be investigating. Kelly restated that they would be investigating the accusations and would not provide further details. A motion was made. The motion was seconded. Unanimous approval again. There weren't many people that had heard about this captivated health issue before this meeting, but there were a few that noticed when the school took steps to make the change in health insurance providers. What was this all about, and how could it have gotten past everyone unnoticed that David Balduch was involved with this company? Some of the details are still a little fuzzy, but apparently in the fall of 2019, Pam Vicarious started to explore change to a different health insurance provider at the request of David Balduch. We don't know the exact details of the conversations yet, but by October 2019, it was evident that Pam Vicarious and David Balduch had visited the offices of Captivated Health in both Orlando and Boston. The supposed goal of the visits was to understand the features and benefits of this new plan and how it would be administered if the board chose to make the change. According to Pam Vicarious, it appeared to her that David Bolduch was already acting as if he was an agent of the company all the way back in October. Things progressed with Captivated Health. And fast forward to March 2020, when David Bolduch put the vote to approve the change to Captivated Health on the board meeting for March 23, 2020. Additionally, a teleconference was organized with two representatives of the company to present the details of the change to the board. When the actual meeting was held, only Kelly Lichter and Laura Miller showed up for the meeting in person, and Perline Foster attended via telephone. Conrad Wilkham did not attend the meeting, and neither did David Bolduch. That's strange. Bolduch put the health insurance item on the agenda and marked it to be an item in which the board would be required to vote. He was supposed to be the insurance expert. Why wasn't he there? Who would be the representative of the board most qualified to answer other board members' questions? This was troubling. In retrospect, 
Some quick math made David Balducci's absence from this meeting even more troubling. Balducci was elected to the MCA board on December 14, 2018. And of course, this wouldn't be an MCA event unless it produced a scandal. So once again, they did not disappoint. He was voted in contrary to MCA policy, as there was not an actual quorum present for the vote. Kelly would later argue that state law allowed for the vote to occur the way it did. But unfortunately, MCA policy did not. MCA's policy, which she voted in favor of, was more strict than state law and did not allow for him to be voted in without the physical presence of enough members to create a quorum. But that's another scandal for another day. Here we are, David Bolduch, MCA board member, elected on December 14, 2018. Why is this significant? Since the date of his appointment, there have been 37 MCA board meetings. In that time period, which spanned 16 months since he was elected, he had missed a total of one board meeting. Just one. He didn't attend by phone ever. He was always present for the meetings in person. And he only missed one board meeting. That's impressive. But the one board meeting that David Bolduch missed was the March 23, 2020 MCA board meeting, where the board needed to vote on the new health insurance provider. Why did he miss the meeting? Why did he put a voting item on the agenda if he was going to be absent? Who knows? He's produced an email that stated that he dropped out of the meeting that morning. But as these facts unfold, we can come up with a pretty good idea why he might want to miss this meeting. So the meeting was held on March 23rd. The Captivated Health representatives made their presentation and thanked the representative from MCA that had visited with them in both Orlando and Boston, and then the board voted... Wait, what? The representative? Singular? Hold on a minute. These meetings in Orlando and Boston were attended by Pam Vicarious, but they were also attended by David Bolduch. Why did they only thank Pam Vicarious? Don't you find that odd? If you're selling your product to someone and want to thank them for coming to see you, don't you thank all of them? Why would you not thank David Bolduch too? Wait, that's right. Pam said that David Bolduch was working as an agent trying to sell Captivated Health services when he was in Orlando and Boston. You wouldn't thank the customer for your own salesman's efforts, too. That wouldn't make sense. Now it does. Let's move on. The board that was present voted unanimously to change to David Bolduch's company, Captivated Health, and the meeting ended shortly thereafter. And that's the last we heard from the Captivated Health group. Well... That was the last we heard from them until they put out a press release two days later announcing David Bolduch's appointment as the director of the Southeast region for their company. Two days? Hmm. Do you think they interviewed him the day after the meeting, made a decision to offer him the job as director of sales, and came up with a press release to post the next day at 8 a.m.? Yeah, we know that didn't happen. According to Pam Vicarious, he was working for Captivated Health back in October, promoting their business as an agent. Balduch eventually admitted that he had been working for them since mid-February 2020, though. Why is this a problem? 
Well, it's an ethical problem and against MCA policy. But more importantly, it's against Florida law for a board member of a taxpayer-funded agency to profit financially as a result of being that board member. He had a duty to disclose the relationship with the company and allow the board to discuss whether this was allowed or not. He had a duty to notify the attorneys and let them review the information to determine whether it was legal for him to benefit from this relationship. Why didn't David Balducci disclose to the board about the potential conflict of interest before the vote? He said it would be a board violation for him to notify the board. What? How is that a violation? Kelly Lichter communicates every day and twice on Sunday in one-way communications with the board. Is that illegal? Why would it then be illegal for him to notify the board? Okay. If he claims that it was illegal for him to notify the board, then he should be able to notify them immediately at the next board meeting, right? Great. The next board meeting was three days after the meeting in which Captivated Health was approved by the board. March 26, 2020. Let's see. What does that agenda say about David Balducci? Uh, I see a principal report. I see a pre-negotiation agreement. I don't see anything about David Balducci disclosing this relationship. Well, he won't forget to bring it up in that meeting. It was too important. That meeting progressed. All board members were present. The formalities were quickly taken care of. And then there was the principal's report. Nothing exciting there. Now on to community comments. Mrs. Maravelli stated that one parent had sent in a community comment to be read, and the parent questioned whether there would be a password for an upcoming meeting, and then made a comment that turned the visible board members stone-faced. She said she was unable to listen to the meeting on the 23rd, so she was unaware as to whether David Balducci had attended the meeting and whether the other board members were aware of his employment with Captivated Health. If you watch the meeting, which we will post this week, you will see the three visible board members, Kelly, David, and Laura, sit there stone-faced and unsurprised. Why? Were the other board members not surprised about this revelation? They didn't look confused. They didn't look angered. They didn't look anything. They already knew. Okay, well, they don't often reply to community comments but Balducci will definitely respond now that he's been called out. They moved on to an agreement related to the Joseph Baird lawsuit and then to board comments. David Balducci said, Nothing. How is this possible? Is the board going to ignore the fact that Balducci works for the newly voted for health insurance provider? When was Balducci going to respond to this? Or was he ever going to respond to this? The next day, Scott Moore, the compliance officer for Mason Classical Academy, sent the board a notice of policy violation. His notice pointed out to the board that there was a possible conflict of interest in conducting the transaction with Captivated Health and that David Balducci had a duty to disclose the relationship. Another MCA meeting was set for April 14, 2020. The agenda for this meeting alluded to some sort of fireworks but I don't think anyone would have anticipated what was to come, except for Kelly Lichter, Laura Miller, and David Balducci, who had obviously planned the outcome beforehand. Once the formalities were out of the way for the April 14th meeting, the parent comments revealed the strategy of how the board was going to address the insurance scandal. Mr. Whitehead, 
who does not typically comment during the parent comments portion of meetings, said he wanted to share his feelings with the board about the new health care plan. He admitted he is not a participant in the current health care plan and wasn't going to join the new one either, but expressed concern about switching plans during a pandemic and shared that many of the MCA employees were unduly worried about the change at a time where everything was so uncertain. He suggested that the board might revisit a change such as this when the chaos from the pandemic had settled down. It was obviously a scripted speech that had been choreographed by the board to give them another option for scrapping the change to captivated health and to save face rather than embarrass Balduch more than he had already been when the scheme was exposed. Once the subject changed to policy violation, David Balduch immediately went on the attack. He started by reading a statement directed to Mr. Moore and attacked him for having sent out a notice of violation that Balduch felt was completely unfounded and not true. However, Mr. Balduch's only defense was that he wasn't at the meeting where the vote took place, so he couldn't notify the board of the conflict. Mr. Balduch, however, also did not mention that he had been an employee or agent of Captivated Health since February 18th, some 34 days prior to the March 23rd meeting, during which the vote took place. Nor did he mention that there were three board meetings after his employment by Captivated Health and before the March 23rd vote. Why didn't he disclose the relationship then? Mr. Balduch alleged that Scott Moore was working in Congress with Principal Vicarious to do harm to the school and the board member's reputation by sending out this notice and listed other events that he believed supported his accusation that Mr. Moore was working on his own agenda. Once Mr. Balduch had finished his statement, something that I have not seen in an MCA board meeting occurred. One MCA board member went completely off script and stood up for Mr. Moore. Conrad Wilkham immediately spoke up against what David Balduch had stated and said that his statement had totally deflected the issue. Remember, deflect and attack. He stated that Balduch had not addressed the obvious conflict of interest in allowing for a vote for the change in health insurance and admonished him for attacking Mr. Moore in an attempt to detract from the real issue. Balduch immediately defended himself by stating that the school attorney had told him that it would be a sunshine law violation to discuss the conflict with other board members outside a board meeting. This was true, but you have to listen closely to what he was saying. He could not discuss the violation with the board. That would have been an improper meeting. However, he absolutely could have sent a message to every other board member, either A, stating the facts of the conflict, or B, simply telling him there's a potential conflict and there should not be a vote before Mr. Balduch disclosed mm -hmm. the details. That was all that was needed to stop the vote on the change in health care plan. Mr. Balduch was trying to mislead everyone into believing that he couldn't communicate the issue to the board legally, so he decided to wait. Unfortunately, this deception wasn't a very good attempt at covering up his scheme, as there was a board meeting just three days later when the parent pointed out the conflict and Balduch declined to comment even though there was a board comment session after the parent pointed out the issue. This deception did not get past Wilcombe either, who pointed out that he had every opportunity to disclose the conflict at the meeting on the 26th, and he failed to do so. Balduch did reveal that he had disclosed the possibility of a relationship to the attorney, but he failed to reveal that he had actually talked to the attorney back in early February. Of course, 
Kelly Lichter chimed in and said the school attorney said that it wasn't a violation because Balduch didn't vote, which was incorrect or a lie, because the failure to disclose the relationship is absolutely a violation. Laura Miller, on cue, jumped in and supported the attack on Scott Moore. They moved on to discuss whether there was an actual conflict of interest. Balduch said he was working with the school attorney to develop this disclosure, and apparently it took from February 6th when Balduch informed the attorney about the need to disclose until April 14th when Balduch finally made his disclosure. It took less time to draft the Declaration of Independence than it took to draft this disclosure. Laura Miller chimed in and stated that she wished she'd known about the violation before the vote on the insurance. Of course, Mr. Balduch corrected her and said that the attorney had stated it wasn't a violation, but it was potentially a conflict. At this point, he was still trying to sell insurance by quoting a statement that not all conflicts are prohibited or harmful. Guess what? This one was prohibited. Once Balduch left the room, Kelly said that she thought his reputation was good and she didn't believe that he was trying to be deceptive, and maybe it was or wasn't a conflict. Wilkham rejected the argument that it might not be a conflict. Kelly stated she was confused on how to move forward. Unfortunately, Laura Miller didn't read her script closely enough and stated that she thought it would have been a different situation if Balduch had accepted the job with Captivated Health before the vote on changing insurance. She said it wouldn't make sense that he didn't notify the board prior to the 23rd if he had already been employed, but since he accepted the job after the vote, it wasn't a violation. Oops. He actually accepted the job a full 34 days before the vote on the change. Wilkham made a motion to vote that this was a conflict of interest, but no one would second the motion. There would be no vote. They brought back Bolduch into the room and moved on to revisit the vote on captivated health. Laura Miller read her script about maybe changing her mind on the insurance based solely on the chaos brought on by COVID-19 and not based on the fact that David Bolduch was going to receive a financial benefit from continuing on with the new company. Then she attacked Pam Vicarious because Mrs. Vicarious told her she had recommended waiting to vote. Mrs. Miller said that she didn't remember Mrs. Vicarious voicing her opinion to wait on the vote and then asked Mrs. Foster if she remembered any such statements by Mrs. Vicarious. Mrs. Foster did not remember that either. Pam Vicarious defended herself, but not to Laura Miller's liking who said that if she had any inclination that Mrs. Vicarious wanted to wait to vote on the new insurance, she would have never agreed to continue with a vote on the 23rd. So basically, Laura Miller called her a liar and moved on. Apparently, Mrs. Miller was a little overwhelmed with the insurance discussion on March 23rd, because a quick review of the video of that meeting revealed that at 44 minutes and 12 seconds into that meeting, Mrs. Miller asks, what Mrs. Vicarious thinks about moving forward with a vote on that day. Mrs. Vicarious replied to Mrs. Miller that they may want to wait to vote based on the fact that they would be receiving the renewal rates for the current insurance company in short order, and they might want to compare the renewal to the new plan before acting. Oops. Again. Laura Miller was really having a rough go of it with calendars and recalling details on this day. The discussion continued, and the end result was that the board voted unanimously to rescind their vote on changing to Captivated Health, to the chagrin of David Balduch, 
who tried to argue for moving forward with captivated health multiple times before the vote. I'm sure that embarrassment played a big part in what would come next. The last item that was addressed in this meeting was Scott Moore. Kelly Mason Lichter stated that she had spoken to both attorneys, the attorney that represented the board in regular matters, and the attorney that was representing the board in suing Joseph Baird. She said that both attorneys thought that Scott Moore should be terminated. Laura Miller read her script about supporting the termination, and then the board voted 4-1 to to terminate Mr. Moore, with Conrad Wilkham the only dissenting vote on the termination. The meeting ended quickly after the vote. It was no surprise that Scott Moore's attorney filed a lawsuit against Mason Classical Academy shortly after his termination. And as the MCA board commits more and more of the school's resources to litigation, it will be interesting to see how long MCA can continue at the pace this board has been burning through funds. Well, that's it for episode two of Rogue Castaway's Hostile Takeover. We didn't have time to explore the Phantom lawsuit today due to the amount of material we had to cover. But that's okay because we are waiting for more material from some of the participants, and hopefully we can discuss that issue next week. We hope you enjoyed episode two, and we hope you subscribe to our show at roguecastaways.com so you can enjoy all of our future episodes. Thank you and have a great week.